Right. Well, we've made it uh, to the end. We've had a, a whole series of uh, uh, papers about a whole number of different themes of which, which have engaged with this theme that we've posed as outsiders in, in many different ways. In really, the, I think, Susan, I hope you'll agree, this workshop we had thought of as one big thought experiment yes. of what happens when we, when we reconceive of uh, kind of case studies, the, the projects we're working on already, uh, by putting outsiders and processes of marginalization into the history of international health. And also, many of us are very keen to think about what happens when we put public health into the history of international organizations and international relations and vice versa, What's, what the connection, what the overlap is. This is one of the, the long-standing themes of the Reluctant Internationalist Project, and outsiders seems to be one way into that um, uh, problematic of bringing different perspectives and different fields together. So we, we heard a lot of different things about outsiders. Outsiders' status is, is relative. It very much depends on context. It's fluid. It's often performed. There's historical outsiders, there's historiographical outsiders, so the kind of, all these create different black spots, blank spots, gaps in, in, in our knowledge and in, in perspectives that are unrepresented. But I think the format should be now uh, that we go through uh, our very eminent panel of um, uh, four final speakers who each have five or so minutes of, of thoughts, of, of hopefully provocative questions to throw into the room. And then we open it up and see where we get to. We have about an hour, I would say. Lunch will arrive here uh, by about one, and we can we can wrap up so that everyone can have time for lunch before we leave. Okay. okay so we start with Thank Susan you. Solomon. So, uh, not to think in terms of insiders and outsiders, but for a North American, this is baseball season, <laughs> and anybody who follows American baseball knows what the pinch hitter is. And I am the pinch hitter for Patricia Clavin, who's very much missed at this gathering. Uh, as Jessica said, we're called here together to think about what I would say is the adequacy of the standard narratives of international public health, and to see how, if at all, we could fill in those black holes. That's what we've been about. And one of the most provocative and I think productive ways to go that's come out here is the sense that we should tell these narratives from below. It was Jessica's paper, in the papers we heard this morning, in Johanna's paper, even in the big uh, database project. The sense that one can tell a different story from below. I think it's interesting way to go. And yet I'm going to submit to you this morning that there's still going to be some conceptual problems, even if we move down. Uh, and I want to talk about three of those. The first goes under the heading of what I call of binaries and spectra. Uh, you knew I would talk about binaries. Anna told me that I had to do it last night. <laughs> and the binary, of course, in which uh, we're engaged is insider, outsider. I think binaries can be very productive, but sometimes at a certain juncture in our thinking, they seem to constrain. And one gets the sense that the most interesting terrain lies somewhere between. And as I was preparing for this symposium, I was sitting in Paris, and I was thinking, the insider who has outsider experience, the outsider who's had an insider involvement, the insider of three degrees of separation, or four, it was, frankly, going nowhere. And so I think the way, the way out, if you will, is to step away from the labels and the concepts and to pose questions, uh, and to ask exactly what are the actors that we're interested in, what are they doing, uh, how are they behaving, specifically, 
What do they do when they are at home? What do they do when they change their setting? Where do they uh, act? Do they create new spaces or are they modifying old spaces? How do they handle the objects? Do they engage directly in confrontation or do they work around? Do they build allies? And how do they present themselves when they are in venues far from home? I think if we want to understand what the individuals between really are about, it's important, for, I hate this because I would, I would never tell my students to be non-conceptual, but it's important, I think, to stand away from the concept and the, the felt necessity to match concepts to empirical material and instead to look at concrete behavior and see where we are. So that's number one. I move with frightening celerity. Uh, the second issue I want to take up, again, it fits under the, the rubric of, um, of binaries and spectra, is the question of actors and internationalism. We heard a lot about that here. And I think I'd start there by uh, raising questions about what we mean by internationalism. In fact, what do the actors mean by it? Is it a space of activity? Is it a scale of activity? Is it a set of commitments about reach and whether or not it should be all-inclusive or not? Is it a set of values that govern, inclu govern inclusion <coughs> or exclusion? I think it's worth making that explicit before we get going, because otherwise the distinctions turn on themselves. Now, where better than here, and in this very supportive atmosphere, to think about the reluctant internationalists as actors? And when I thought about the reluctant internationalists, I thought again, not simply of the binary opposite, the enthusiastic or deeply persuaded internationalists, and there's Paul's term that I've always loved, internationally minded people. I always liked that from 1995. But I think there's a really interesting spectrum between them. And that would be, I tried this out on Jessica yesterday at tea and she didn't throw anything at me. Um, that would be the conditional internationalist who says, in general, no. But under these circumstances and for these reasons, I will join this effort while reserving my right under different conditions to step away. There's also the inadvertent internationalist who might have had no commitments, maybe deep reservations, but finds him or herself enmeshed in a series of discourses and activities in which, from which there's no stepping away. So if we have some different categories in a spectrum, then the questions follow to me at least, logically, when you have a given set of events, how does membership in one of these groups change over time? How do the categories themselves of different types of internationalists change? And most important and interesting to me, who structures the relationship between these rules? How are those structured? Because if we can't figure out how they're structured, then we're continually surprised uh, by what is happening. Finally, I think, am I still within my five? Good. Finally, I want to think about the writing of international public health because that's what brought us here. And when we think about international public health as an enterprise, we're un we are unavoidably drawn into watching the circulations, whether they're circulations of people, ideas, institutions, 
I think probably because many of us came to the history of uh, international public health from intellectual history or from social history, we are unavoidably, we unavoidably privilege the circulation of people and of ideas. And what I find missing, not necessarily from here, but in general, is the circulation of practices. Now these are less glamorous. This is, this is not, I'm mean, just imagine telling a doctoral student that he or she is going to spend five years looking at the unsexy topic of how international standards are designed, how fact-finding missions are dreamed up and then carried out, how data collection across a number of societies is managed, and then how handbooks, statistical, uh, textual, are developed. I think that would be a hard sell, and yet I submit to you that these are the important questions. There are a lot of important questions about the infrastructure of international endeavor. And once we pose them, then I think we can come at and put two of my favorite questions. To what extent are these practices subject to, or dash hostage to, political factors? I, I miss politics. Of course, here the Cold, Water is the a, Cold War is the a fortiori case. If not there, where are you going to see politics? But I'd love to see us work more on the impact of political uh, factors on practices not outside the Cold War period. We've got a long century and a bit to go. And the second question, to what extent are the international public health practices that we talk about dependent on culture? There have been a couple of papers on that uh, at, at this symposium. I think it's extremely important because it touches the whole question of, if you will, translation. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's move on. To, let's save questions and, all, and, and, and discussion for, I think, for the end. Peter Jackson, should we move on to you? Sure. Thanks very much, Jessica. And thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, I'm so sorry I missed yesterday's papers because the panel this morning was, I thought, really quite extraordinarily interesting and good. And I come here as an outsider. I think it's fair to say. I am, uh, uh, just to make my position clear where I'm coming from, I'm an historian of international relations, uh, and in particular over the last eight years or so, did a lot of work on the, the intersection between transnational movements for peace, and especially thinking about peace through law, and uh, conceptions of national security in France before, during, and after the First World War, and the effect of the First World War. In fact, as I, I have been trying to argue, of bringing, creating space for internationalist ideas, especially what I would call juridical or legalist internationalist ideas about how to have peace and how to create a new political order that's fundamentally legal. Uh, and uh, I was, that, it made me a bit of an outsider in my own field because it wasn't terribly well received by an older generation of historians that had been imbued with the idea that uh, French foreign policy, and especially French foreign policy under the leadership of Georges Clemenceau, was classically realpolitik and driven by concerns of power politics. And I tried to show that, in fact, there were these legalist conceptions of international order, which were very influential, and uh, uh, it's made me a bit of an outsider in that field. However, however, uh, that brings me to what I really wanted to say about about uh, today, 
in that my own field, the history of international relations, has been going through a bit of an existential crisis over the past 15 to 20 years, uh, posed on one level, I think, by uh, challenges to engage more comprehensively with theories of international relations, but also by the challenge posed by the rise of a transnational uh, approach to, to, to history, which looks at the flows of people and ideas and practices uh, at levels which aren't through the official networks of the state. And the idea that uh, this, in fact, was the only way to move our understanding of international relations forward. In, and this is uh, something that many of us have been wrestling with, and I've been thinking about in my own limited way for about five or six years. And I find it quite tricky, personally, to see transnational and more traditionally history of international relations approaches as fundamentally distinct. I don't think that they are at all. I think you miss important aspects of one if you set it up in opposition to the other. And one example would be uh, uh, historians who only want to focus on, they, they say that if you're studying international history, you're studying relationships of power, and you can't get at power if you focus on transnational flows and ethnic approach, which, which uh, looks to move well beyond the state. And I think that that's not, not very uh, persuasive, as several of the papers we heard this morning even, I think, demonstrate power works through the international, international space, not just at the level of states. But in fact, it's the interrelationship between the two that actually helps us understand and tells us fundamental things about the way the international system changes. For example, it's inconceivable that you could have the relative explosion of movements of people and ideas from the late 19th century on, which on one level is driven by technology, but on another level is driven, is enabled by state power. Frankly, without the Royal Navy, a lot of the uh, even the objects of study in the recent rise of tr the transnational approach to history would have been impossible, and it's just uh, a fact. And I think probably it's interesting in history, at least, the transnational turn emerged at the same time uh, in, in, in the history of international relations emerged, along with the end of the Cold War and people thinking that the state was retreating. Susan Strange was writing The Retreat of the State, for example, and uh, the, the fact is the state is more intrusive, more powerful, more omnipresent than ever in our lives, than at any point in the history of, of, of uh, humanity. The state is inescapable. And it's only by thinking about uh, the interrelationships between these two fields of study that are, that are important. And this is why I was slightly surprised to read in beyond internationalism, two of the authors of which are here, that the history of internationalism long ago parted ways with international history, because I don't think it can. I don't think you can actually do one without the other. And the problem is that, uh, especially people in my field have been very reluctant to open up to, to new approaches. The second half of what I had to say today, 
related to what I've heard and what I've read from the papers that were sent around, I'm afraid Susan's stolen quite a lot of my thunder because I wanted to say that it seems, from my perspective, that we are talking about practices of internationalism, practices of international uh, public health. And this is fascinating and incredibly exciting for me. Uh, but it wouldn't, I think it wouldn't hurt, perhaps for some people, perhaps maybe if not in this room, future PhD students, to actually integrate practice theory into the, uh, an approach which focuses on practices that feel like on the ground as opposed to big ideas that are inspiring uh, ideas about international ideas about public health or, or organizations which are, are, are not uh, involved in, in implementing these ideas and delivering them. And if we think about a practice theory in this way, for me anyway, uh, one, one is led inevitably to Pierre Bourdieu and his ideas about fields and habitus and practices as being uh, inseparable from, uh, if you like, our internal orientation to the world on the one hand, but also our interaction with the fields in which we're moving and operating and strategizing on the other. And there was so much uh, of, of uh, that in, for example, Anna's really excellent paper, I thought. Uh, but, 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 uh, but, but also in, in different ways, Doris, and some of the papers I've read about practices. And so I suppose I would conclude by saying, is there any potential in perhaps incorporating practice theory into history of international practices or practices of international public health? That's where I'll end up. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. OK, let's move along. Patrick. Thank you. Yes, first of all, this is my, my pleasure to thank Jessica and, and, and Susan for invi having invited me to this very interesting meeting. Uh, we, we, learn, we learn a lot uh, uh, at, at the different uh, 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 papers. So I will not I will not go back to the to what Susan says about insiders and outsiders. Everybody knows it should be the introductory note of every paper on on that subject. But I I, I should I should only uh, express two or three remarks or two or three points about uh, our meeting. I, I will take Russia as an instance. Uh, as you know, Russia was an outlier in the early 20s, but it but nevertheless it participated in the international cooperation against uh, infectious disease in Eastern Europe in, in the early 20s. Um, Ludwig Reichmann and Norman White were in Moscow during the fall of 1921, trying to convince the Russians to cooperate with the Allied Commission in Southwest Russia. And against all odds, Ukraine and Russia accepted. So true Russia, Russia was not entirely cut off from the West. The Cannes Conference in January 22 had invited the Soviets to participate in the next economic uh, conference in Genoa in May 1922, and in between, 
which is not in between NEST, but in between the two conferences, there was also the Warsaw Conference in March 22 on public health and the fight against epidemic. And Warsaw Conference would give Russia an opportunity to re-enter on uh, uh, international cooperation institution. Uh, a, a, a vice presidency in this conference was given to Dr. Kalina, which, who was a head of international relations at the People's Commissariat for Health. And of, but of course, the Russians did not forget their aims. They did not recognize the League of Nations even if they had chosen to participate in whichever organizations that exist, I quote, without asking for their origins, unquote. This is probably why, as Susan said, the Soviets never saw themselves as outsiders. Uh, what does all this mean? It means that one can be an outlier as concerns international institutions, while using technical cooperation in order to disseminate political message to whatever government it may concern. On his road to Genoa, for instance, Georgi Chicherin, People Commissar for Foreign Affairs, will state that if for, I quote, if for the states in Western Europe, the reconstruction of Russia is a capital issue. For the neighboring states, it's a matter of life and death. And it, uh, you cannot survive with angry and sick country at your door. This is, of course, an interesting declaration indeed, very simple on first sight. At second sight, such statements appear rather intriguing. For no, notwithstanding the anachronism, uh, one is tempted to say that Chicherin was reformulating border politics in some sort of borders biopolitics. I draw here on Hans Martin Jaeger's definition of biopolitics governance as a reprogramming of sovereignty and global governance whose political finality is vitality, security, and productivity of the global population. Well, you might, you might ask, did Outlier created, create an alternative institution? We saw yesterday uh, in, 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 in Paul's paper that the Nazi tried to recreate uh, an alternative institution. They failed. But, uh, well, I think that Outlier, I mean a true Outlier, a, a, a fierce Outlier, must uh, try to create alternative institution. Not, I'm, I'm not really convinced by the discussion this morning between history from the, from, from the perspective of, of international institution versus history from the perspective of outside the international institution. I think we, we have recently tried everything. We have tried classically history from the international institution perspective. We have also tried the history from outside the international perspective, institution perspective. So I, for me, at least, the, the door is closed. Uh, it's it's, 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 a, it's a, a fight which we, 
we can uh, uh, forget. Uh, uh, you, so, uh, as alternative institutions, Russia and Germany tried to negotiate in Rapallo in, in, in 1922, just parallel to the Warsaw uh, Conference, uh, wherein Germany had an important part too. But Rapallo did not bring about any novel institution. So, in public health, outliers had ample space. Uh, they play sovereignty through functionalism or through biopolitics. The two, two things are equivalent. The United States left its chair empty. The United States was, was, if I may say so, the supreme outsider, or the outsider supreme. And uh, uh, they left uh, uh, their chair empty. And at the same time, the United States gave a push through the Rockefeller Foundation, which was some kind of unofficial State Department. Uh, and the USSR behaved more or less in the same way until 1934, when it was accepted as an insider. So we have spoken of functionalism or biopolitics. Sorry. Uh, we need to go further. Francis Fukuyama carved out a continuum of international cooperation. This is the image. On the left, you see formal legitimacy. On the right, informal cooperation uh, that makes for better efficacy. And uh, Jessica yesterday insisted that power and hierarchy were center stage. Well, I call this a legitimacy efficacy question. Uh, legitimacy is based on sovereignty rather than on a, on a definition of justice, meaning democracy or human right. Therefore, international organizations accommodate the reality of the world. That's why it's, 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 there is no use to, 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 uh, to fight about inside the in international institution or outside. They accommodate the reality of the world. They are peopled with a great many, with a great many authoritarian, abusive, unrepresentative states, former outsider becoming insider. International public health institutions accepted, in a, in a word, a trade-off of legitimacy, transparency, and accountability for the sake of efficient. Uh, decision-making, at least so they believed. Was this the migration of the status of outsiders that international institutions provide as, as the mitigation, sorry, the mitigation of the status of outsider that international institutions provide, as David Bryden suggested? But of course, institutions, I quote, that are regarded as legitimate are not terribly effective, why those that are effective are not regarded as legitimate. And it is crucial to remember this when we scrutinize outsiders and insiders. In cooperating to Warsaw Conference, Russia choose efficacy without any qualms. In conclusion, 
outsiders and insiders and are not about inclusion or, or exclusion. They are about legitimacy and efficacy. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll make two sets of comments. Uh, one which will be at the more the collective structural level, and the other will be more at the individual actor level. Um, my first set of comments. Leon yesterday made a very insightful, asked a very insightful question, which there was no time to respond to. But he raised the issue of national homogeneity versus outsiders. And if one thinks about the international structures that we're dealing with through the 20th century, we begin before the First World War with multi-ethnic imperial power blocks. We move through the war with increasing ideas of racialization and destruction to coming out the other end with ideas of national self-determination and the building of health and welfare systems. But this has a dark side, because if you have a welfare system providing certain classes of people who are, um, who are entitled on the basis of citizenship and um, um, contributions um, as, as, as workers, you have to think, who are the excluded and outsider populations? We went to the refugee exhibition yesterday, and if there is one aspect which they, in a really interesting exhibition, but they didn't um, pick up on. Every refugee to the UK in the 1930s had a guarantor, or there was a system of collective guarantees. Um, and what the guarantor did was to, that was the interlocutor between the inside state system and they, um, to secure visas, the right to work, to extract their refugee from internment, and then regarding naturalization. The, refuge, the guarantor is a really important person mediating between the, outside, between the outsider and the insider. It was a relatively um, successful um, system. Well, it was relatively successful for the UK. But of course, we deal also with outsider populations without such entitlements, with Roma, with vagrants. We deal with the objects of international health. I deal with medical experiment victims, the victims of research in Tuskegee in Guatemala. Um, so the, there is a, a dark side to this international health work that needs to be figured in. Um, and the whole state system, I think um, Raphael Lemkin provides a very good critique of it in terms of a genocidal imminence to, the, to, to state systems based on national self-determination, in that minority groups will be, because they are in the minority, they will be excluded, they will be vulnerable in some ways, and in, as we've seen with the racialization, extremely vulnerable. Um, 
I find the post-Second World War situation extremely interesting. On the one hand, there is this brief flowering, 1945 to 48, of post-war visionary internationalism with ideas of world peace, world government, absolutely impressive with the numbers of different uh, human rights declarations. But there is another side. When I came into working on the first night, I remember vividly my first visit to the Palais des Nations in Geneva. There was a, an archivist, a Swedish archivist, Sven Vilanda, and he said to me, he said, look, he said, there are two things, if you want to work in this area, there are two things you must know. Firstly, they're all spies. You're talking about nobody is doing what they are ostensibly meant to be doing, what they say they're doing. There is another narrative going on. So that's one aspect. And it's true there are security systems which are operating at the time of these international organizations. The second issue which he mentioned is something which we struggle with, is the massive destruction of documents. And he said the UN, particularly the WHO, was guilty of falsifying its history through systematic destruction documentation. So I think good tips. Um, so we struggle with that on the one hand while working within this global context of looking at the displaced at population transplantations, which is massive in the whole history of the 20th century, and migration, and that's, I think, something we're all engaged with. Uh, let me make some more comments at the individual level. Um, I think many of you may know the play by Henrik Ibsen, The Enemy of the People, where the expert, the sanitary expert, actually is hated and vilified by the community for sayings. The cause is about some, um, it, it, I think it's an infected sewer, sewer system and so on. So the expert is a vulnerable, is inherently a vulnerable uh, figure. Um, Reichman is a classic example. I warmed to writing on the history of the unknowns. I wrote uh, 500 pages about a extremely wayward, totally unknown person called John Thompson, a Rolling Stone who worked in military intelligence on international trials at Nuremberg, in UNESCO with a new German program, and then living in a curious spiritual settlement where there were also all sorts of dark issues being resolved. So it's, I think, very interesting looking at this individual, linking an individual's life history in their trajectory through multiple organizations. I think the, um, the, the Rockefeller um, database that's being constructed in its, this wider intention is very important to do it this way. Um, I think looking at the way expertise threads through the Holocaust, somebody like Ludwig Fleck, really interesting person. Expertise, on the one, experts are vilified on the one hand, on the other hand, if you have expert knowledge like Fleck, it can assist with your survival. He worked in Buchenwald. So there is a fascinating tension between a dark side of internationalism. There's um, a recent article by Patel 
and also and that the brave new world that the experts are trying to construct, perhaps laudably, can also be caught up in vision in manip well, on the one hand visionary, on the other hand it's manipulative. Um, how to do it? There's a very interesting book, perhaps a little bit obscure by Isidore Fischer, a biographical lexicon um, published in 1932 um, about um, doctors. And it was reissued with a biographical introduction um, about fractured life histories. Um, really interesting thing, analysing how all the, most of these doctors are either caught up, are caught up in some way in the Second World War and forced migration and so on, and I think is a very good example of, um, uh, he uses uh, Halbach's framework of belief as an issue. I think that we can work in this way using ideas of sequential trauma, a very interesting concept of Carlson looking at the different stages and looking at cause of migration uh, through the, the sort of a, a life history as a long march through institutions, but also as highly stressful and difficult to negotiate. Um, and I, maybe I should stop there, because Thank I think you. that Thank provides you very an much. insight. Let's give all and we have just about half an hour now to, to open the floor. And uh, I think there's a lot of points that can be answered directly and others that uh, you, you may have to, um, uh, you, 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 I hope you have to add about the, the uses, the limitations of this, of this uh, uh, thought experiment and about any of the um, provocations from the, from the speaker. So I open the floor. Stunned. Stunned. I'd like to speak to the, the, the importance of practice that, that Susan and um, uh, Peter um, alluded to. I think it's, um, it's uh, partly this, this separation between fields that, that we see at work here, because there's tons, tons, tons of work going on this in the history of science. History um, of science. So, so that's where this is happening, but they, don't, they rarely talk to the historians of health um, or historians of internationalism in any, any way or general historians. So they're, they're very separate discussions. They're, they're rarely crossovers like Joanna Radian's work on, 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 on blood um, freezing and sampling um, uh, that, that you know, she engages with those you know, post-colonial practices and web of practices, Cold War and WHO and and Pacific and U.S. and uh, and so on. There is there is a bit of that going on, but it's it, but it's I think it's it's when you, when you said that your graduate students would not be excited. Well, historians of history of science graduate students like this is what gets them really going. You know, it's it's that that um, that that lack of, of of conversation where where history of medicine and health. Um, oftentimes it's not in conversation with history of science. Oftentimes these are not in conversation with general historians and history of internationalism also has its own world. So, so um, I think this is where we, we could, there would be space for another set of outsiders in a disciplinary or, or outsiders of field um, that could get these conversations going. For a long time the historians of science didn't want to have much trouble 
with practices eager and in the literature there's a, I think it's been slower to grow Paul than the history of the great men and the great ideas I think uh, it is now of course an accepted part of it I gave a paper once at UBC and I sent the title and they were quite horrified why write the history the life history of a scientific nobody uh, and there are compelling reasons to do so so I agree that's a good conversation to open I, I think that, that uh, specific practice theory is so fruitful. I didn't. I, I felt I probably didn't give it its, uh, its its due in terms of describing how it might. Because especially for a board view, it's about who gets to speak the truth. Who gets to, who has the cultural claim to be an expert in what field? And if you move in different fields, and the cultural capital is different, and and symbolic power works differently, and. Uh, this seemed to be so central to some of the questions you were asking that I thought it could be really a fruitful avenue for inquiry. Well, this, you, you, you're mulling over possible questions. I guess I'd like to take Chair's privilege and, and answer um, to Patrick's provocation about how insiders, outsiders are not about inclusion and exclusion. I think this is actually links very nicely. To me, this is a very, a, a, a slightly unhelpful, very top-down, very singular and very particular model that is only thinking about certain end products and not about processes. And it can't grapple with, uh, pro with examples where the very idea of legitimacy is debated, where there's actually possible uh, alternatives. UNRWA is a great example where there's very different uh, uh, lines of traject historical trajectories leading to this body and very different political models of uh, uh, future states statehood and legitimacy being debated. And in practice, these debates take place inside an organization, and I think certainly outside as well, in the form of inclusion and exclusion. So legitimacy is kind of the end product, possibly. And we, we, it doesn't really explain us about how we get there. Um, but that's just one answer. Yeah. Any other responses so far? OK, so Maria, Johanna? Yeah, just, just um, um, Thoughts uh, that uh, are not very well constructed. Just uh, wanted to share them um, with you. Um, I was wondering um, um, if there is any way to think about internationalism, not in terms of of, of West of the West, because what we are talking about mostly what we have talked about um, was um, um, international institutions that were based or created by the West. So my question is, is there any way to think about internationalism without thinking of uh, the West, without thinking with Western terms? And um, I think, I don't know if it is an answer, but maybe this is a direction to think, uh, um, well, with another out of the box, with what Susan has said about uh, practices and you as a process. I mean, if we are studying the process of uh, being um, not national, first of all, uh, then uh, it could be, let's say, a first step to think not in a Western way. For instance, what, for instance, uh, Asia and China, we've heard about some things about Taiwan, uh, and um, what about India? I mean, are we talking the same language when we're talking about internationalism? I mean, in terms of um, not in necessarily in terms of um, uh, international uh, institutions, uh, but in terms of 
uh, being uh, international but not uh, given the content of what we all are used to do. Um, yeah, and just another, uh, let's say, com not comment, but um, another thought, um, maybe relevant to what I've already said. Um, I was also expected to hear about something about um, a Pasteur Institute as an international, let's say, uh, institution and about an institution that also um, um, engaged in, in, in producing, uh, in producing um, uh, serums and viruses and so on. Uh, and I was wondering if we are talking also uh, in terms of outside, I mean, if we all uh, if we also um, creating, you know, this ex inclusion or exclusions in our narrative, but this is only just a thought of not necessarily something that we uh, consciously do as such. Thank you. Let's move on to Johanna and maybe connect with your responses. Mm -hmm. um, so I have two little comments. So the first is for Peter, and I. Um, Really, I'm very interested in this idea of the relationship between state diplomacy and the transnational non-state, sort of the state-non-state -state binary, and challenging that makes a lot of sense coming from the socialist world, actually. There's, I can recommend a, an edited volume called The Socialist 60s, um, edited by Diane Cocker and Ann Gorsuch. They really point out that actually the transnational turn in, in the socialist world is a state uh, project, and really there's very little uh, um, flow across boundaries. It doesn't involve the state. Talbot Imlay makes many of the same points in yeah. a recent AHR article. <coughs> so, sorry? Talbot Imlay. It's the same, uh -huh. same idea. They're, mm -hmm. they're very similar. Yeah. Interesting. And um, so I think, um, yeah, that point is really, in, in some ways, when I talk about, say, a cultural diplomacy coming from the Soviet side, it's, it's, for me, it's less difficult to define what is cultural diplomacy because the state is really almost always involved in any kind of cultural exchange and there is vetting involved and um, it seems sort of defined already anytime that a cultural agent is, moves across uh, the state border, it's already um, uh, an action of the state. And, but then also they bring along sort of their auxiliary personnel who also bring their own agenda, so they're not as close to the state agenda. Mm -hmm. So family members are often doing other, pursuing other objectives. But, um, and then I had another question. Um, so it seems just thinking about the, the conference as a whole, um, it seems that there's some, there's some sort of a, a biographical turn, possibly, that we're talking about in um, international, the history of international public health. There are a lot of, there's a lot of talk of individuals and their biographies and their, um, and it, it's very, very interesting. I mean, I, I'm speaking more as an outsider to this field, but as an observer, I'm, I'm curious to that in this question that the, the, I, the role of ideas it doesn't sort of uh, fall out that um, the ideas that are shaping these uh, individual biographies and motivating action on the international, so the internationally minded, the, the sort of the, that sphere doesn't get um, lost. To some degree, there's a sense that, well, there's the, the, you're seeing it from an international perspective, these individual biographies as this inexorable. Um, attraction of the international organization um, that, that the individuals experience. 
But I'm wondering also about the push factors that push individuals toward the, um, toward the international organizations as much as what draws uh, the pull factors. So, um, it, so I guess I'm just, I, I, I want to introduce the idea that, this is, uh, that, that we think about the individuals uh, sort of as pawns of the international organizations, but also as part of, say, intellectual history as well. So, yeah. um, just concerning the practice theories and the use of Bourdieu, which could be interesting. Um, Bourdieu could be interesting when we are studying international actors and on two levels. The first one, I think, is uh, at the conceptual level. Um, one of the very interesting points, so I will be short because everybody wants to uh, eat and so on, is, is you know, the distinction, distinction between different types of capital, you know, economic, social, cultural, scientific. And I think it was very interesting yesterday, the discussion about fellowship and so on. Some were saying you should not focus only on the political, but also on the scientific. I think what is interesting with Bourdieu is that you can mix different kinds of capital. And this is very important. The second point, which is not really um, Bourdieu, but one of his, um, um, I would say, students, Boltanski, is the question of multipositionality. So the fact that you can have, at the same time, different functions. You can be a neutral expert and a member of the government. You can be at, in an international organization and a spy. Like, you know, and, no, it, that you have more than one function. And I think this is very interesting. Uh, second, perhaps one thing which is missing about Bourdieu and so on, and which could be very fruitful if we look at all the, it's, um, how to say, the micro history. Ginsburg and so on, and the analysts to say that, you know, Bourdieu is very often looking at only one scale, the national scale, because he's studying France and so on, not very often the international. And that you have to take into mind too, and this is very important, that you are not only active at the international level, you are too uh, very active too at the national level and sometimes at the local level. And these I would say space, geographical space, are very closely entangled. And this is very important. Another point which is, I think, interesting or simulating by Bourdieu is the question of field and the hierarchy among fields. And it was a discussion yesterday we had and so on, the fact that, you know, among uh, the World Health Organization and other organizations, some experts are from economics are perhaps more influential than others. And you know, he has very interesting uh, studies on you know, the Grand École in France and so on, and the hierarchy within this Grand École and so on. And I think it could be very interesting. And the last point, which is interesting by Bourdieu, is the methodological level. Because for us, we are going to study 10,000 of persons, and Bourdieu and so on, didn't really trust regression and so on, and developed what is called multiple correspondence analysis, which um, allow people to, you know, to use all these different uh, capital or data in order to, try to, 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 to show that there are fields, tension within the fields and so on. So for this reason, I think that perhaps <coughs> I will be more practical. Bourdieu can be useful for some question and so on, and more in the application of some of these questions, the concept among a very precise 
Uh, and because too often I see people using Bourdieu in a very abstract way, which is not very really useful. And I think here, with his reflection about capital and so on, uh, the way we can use it to understand the internationalists is very interesting. to German and so on, which is a kind of capital that they are, and we should perhaps think about what is perhaps the kind of capital which helped them to go to become very international um, public figures and so on, and there are some capital that were not conceptualized by Bourdieu. The fact that, you know, all of them were, you know, had very different uh, experiments through migration or you know, through and so on. And I think that this concept of cosmopolitan capital could be very interesting to link to this um, um, international, um, and they could be reluctant and so on, but internationalist. Well, I, I think that, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a, 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 a staunch admirer of Bourdieu. But I think that uh, if, we, if we take what you say, some tools, but the problem is that is it possible with Bourdieu to pick up some tools, useful, and to, 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 to use them uh, for your own goals and your own strategy without be, being tainted, I would say, by, by the... By, by, by the, the totalitarian vision of Bourdieu, which ended, I, I remind you, in irrationalism in the end. So th this is the problem of Bourdieu. That some tools, uh, 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 social capital have been mentioned. Social capital is also a, a concept, an American concept, which is very different. And, and Bourdieu carve out his own concept, but social capital could be used. But what about the, 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 the old theory? Do you, do you think really that we can use tools from Bourdieu without being... Well, that's the big debate. Yeah. I think yes, but uh, well, 
but we'll disagree. Yeah. Okay. Dora. Yes, I, I would like to come back to, to Susan's point. You said let's you know, start with the, what's on the ground and then think about the concept. And I think, I think it's a, it's, I, I remember being very frustrated with this as a graduate student because I wanted to apply, you know, I wanted theory. I was, we were all clamoring for, you know, give us the theory and, and then we'll, you know, go out in the world and do wonderful things with it. And then everybody said, no, 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 you just calm down, you just see what's in the archives and then, you know, think about it and then, you know, read and, and build it up. And of course that worked really well. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but on the other hand, if we, you know, it's, it's, it's a very tricky thing because, because you know, science and technology studies will, will help you, you know, look into those, ask questions or look at sources that you wouldn't necessarily use or, or, or Bourdieu or, or whoever, you know, it's, 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 that, um, it's that weird balance that has to be struck. But I, I, yeah, I still, I still am in favor of, you know, going out, looking at what's there, and then thinking of, of how to piece together. And I'm, I think I made David on, on this, that yes, you take, you take Ginsburg and Natalie Zeman Davis, with, you know, who writes about women on the margins as what we could, you know, apply to interest. You take Bourdieu, you take, you know, um, Foucault, you take, you take all these, um, you take Latour, you take stuff, and then you, you, you think about it. Not, not necessarily, you know, apply them, but but help use them to help you ask questions and use them to guide the sources. Uh, for what it's worth, I don't look at it as a balance. I'm the last person to be uh, a conceptual, as my colleagues will tell you. I look at it as an accordion. Uh, you start, something works, you follow it up. If it doesn't work, you pull out. You go to the empirical. What does the empirical tell you? Then you know what you're looking for and your approach, I and mean, that's when you can cherry pick when you, I worry about the procrastinate bed, fitting the empirical data into conceptual grids, even if they don't quite work and something is really hanging out here. So, I mean, we all have that, but the point is how to get around it. And I know for myself, I started out, I'm very guilty in front of Jessica, I, I came across the, the, the water and I said, Jessica, insiders, outsiders. She was a wonderful and is a wonderful Actually, partner. Actually, you came and said outliers. Outliers. This is and and you told me that was we said that's not on. Uh, <laughs> so I said, okay, outsiders. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, it's not working. And so intense reflection and cherry picking wouldn't have got me where I wanted. So I had to go back into the data. And then I think I'm prepared to know where I might want to look. So it's the accordion effect. For what it's worth. Thank you. Paul, you have another Okay. Um, I think we're a very uh, sane and balanced committee regard <laughs> or panel regarding um, relations between theory and um, practice. Um, it certainly is the case that if you, regarding this issue of science and how much science and medicine you actually need to do to understand and follow it up. The more you get into the science, the more you will lose your, the more one is in danger of losing one's credibility among the wider historical world. I think it's, if you re, if you, on the other hand, I think 
in my view, there is an obligation in understanding what the, the nature of expertise, the contents of expertise, what the experts are actually saying, what they base it on, what they claim it to be based on. I mean, if you look at Nobel Prizes, every Nobel Prize that I've ever looked at in science and medicine has fallen to bits. It's been... <laughs> <laughs> has really either it's very contested or it is just based on total error. Some cancer theory of worms, or you know, it's amazing what you get a Nobel Prize for. Uh, on the other hand, you need to understand it, you need to follow it up, and so on. So, you need to look at the nature of expertise, um, although that may not be that welcome among the general historical community, I think they have to swallow that pill. Mm. Thank you. Well, Susan, you want to find no, a word no, on this? No, no, no. <laughs> I think we've, we've, we're nearing a, 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 a very balanced co uh, conclusion, and I think we all have to apply these choices that we make to our own research and, and uh, hopefully make the right choices. Generally, I would say for, for me, I think putting these questions about uh, the role of public health and the nature of internationalism and the, 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 the dynamics of very complicated international processes and spheres that we're talking about into a workshop like this is, is, is a worthwhile thing to do. And I hope we'll reconvene in some way in, in, a, in a couple of years' time when we've been working with it. So thank you very, very much, everyone, and particularly the speakers, and lunch is served. And thank you. <laughs> Thank you.